John says, we are almost finished in the book of Judges. I'm speaking on Samson today. Uh, and then next week, as John says, we have a guest speaker coming. I really want to encourage you, be here next Sunday uh, to hear uh, what this uh, gentleman will share with us uh, and for us all to weigh it together and receive it together and be encouraged, I'm sure, together. Um, and then in two weeks' time, John is rounding off this series. And if you've been here for the rest of this series, you won't be surprised, I don't think, at where we go today because the trajectory of the book of Judges hasn't been an upward and positive one, has it? Quite the opposite. It's been depressing. It's got worse and worse. And I wonder if you've picked up on the rhythm of all of the Judges' stories. I wonder if you can... If, I mean, can anyone tell me what phrase does every judge's story start with? Does anyone pick this up? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I clearly haven't been clear enough. Once again, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And every single judge's story has started like that. And after that, what happens is that God, because of their evil deeds, gives them into the hands of the people around them who they should have driven out when they came into the promised land, but they didn't. And God gives them into their hands and they oppress the people of Israel and the people of Israel cry out to God, God save us from these people and the things that they're doing to us. And God graciously raises up a judge who saves them and then there is a period of peace until the start of the next judge's story when we hear once again, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And it's just depressingly predictable. And, and Samson's story is probably the worst of the lot. And there are two reasons why I think it's the worst of the lot. The first thing that I think makes Samson's story the worst of the lot is that all of the other judges, when they were acting, and they were acting like the people in the land around them. You know, John explained in the first session, and I've said it a few times as well, the book of Judges is about the canonization of Israel. It's about how the people of Israel became like the people around them. They, they weren't distinct, distinctive anymore. They weren't recognizable as God's chosen, set-apart, holy people. They'd become like the people around them. But whereas all of the other judges, when they worked to see the people of Israel released from the oppression that they were under at the hand of the people around them, they were at least working for the freedom of the people of Israel, even when they were shoving swords up kings' bellies so that the fat covered the hill, even when they were driving tent pegs into kings' heads. You know, it's been grim stuff. The, the people have acted like the people of the lands around them, but they've been doing it to set the people free. Samson couldn't care less about the people of Israel. Samson doesn't even care about his own mum and dad. He literally only thinks about himself. And what makes it sadder as well is that not only is Samson embodying the phrase that might sum up the book of Judges, which is that there's no king in Israel and everyone does as they please, he's also embodying the state of the entire nation, who just don't care anymore. In Samson's time and in Samson's story, the people of Israel are not crying out to God. That third thing in the cycle that we've gone through with every judge doesn't happen. The people are not crying out to God anymore. 
And yet, despite the people of Israel's faithlessness, the thing that has so encouraged me as we've gone through this book, because it hasn't always been the judges themselves, the thing that has encouraged me most as we've gone through this book is we have seen the faithfulness of God, that he continues uh, by his grace and because of his promise to work through imperfect people again and again. The second thing that makes the judge's story the saddest of the judge's stories for me is that Samson seems to be the one with the most promise. He, he has an amazing call on his life. He, he is a mighty man. Some of the things that I will tell you that he did, if you don't know the story, are, are amazing. And he just squanders it. He squanders it all. And if you've never read the book of Judges before, and if you knew the story of Jesus, when you came to this, having been depressed by everything that's happened so far in the book of Judges, you would think, good, we're finally going to have some good news. We're finally going to have a judge who is great. Because the angel of the Lord appears to Samson's mum and says this to her. He says, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. You know, how many other people that have been born in the Bible have, have their, their birth has been preceded by an angel coming and saying what's going to happen? You know, what promise? <laughs> what promise? This guy is going to be a Nazarite to God from the womb. He's going to begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. What promise? Now, a Nazarite, if you are not aware, is someone who has made the Nazarite vow. We read about it in Numbers 6. And anyone, any man or any woman, can make the Nazarite vow. It is a vow where they say, I'm separating myself for you, God. And the three marks of a Nazarite, someone who's taken this vow, and as I say, you enter into it voluntarily, you enter into it for a period of time that's up to you. You know, I'm going to enter into this vow for six months. I'm going to be a Nazarite for six months or whatever. And you enter into it and the marks of it are that you won't drink any wine or strong drink. You won't cut your hair or let a razor touch your head and you won't touch any corpses. Yeah, not even your own family. Well, that is quick work, Luca. Unless you just know it off by heart anyway. Um, <laughs> good work. So, Samson's story is unusual because whereas other people enter into this Nazarite vow voluntarily, Samson is called by God to be a Nazarite before he is even born. And in his womb, in his mother's womb, he is a Nazarite. And she observes these uh, regulations for him. And the parents took the charge seriously. And in verse 24 we read, And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. Surely, Samson's period of judging Israel is going to be epic. Like, what a guy, yeah? Nazarite from the womb. He is going to begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And then the first thing Samson does as an adult is he chooses himself a wife from the Philistines. And you'll go, oh, Samson, what are you doing? His parents tell him not to. 
His parents are like, can't you find someone from your own people? Why would you choose a wife from these uncircumcised Philistines? And you're going, Samson, no. Come on, you're supposed to be saving the people of Israel from the Philistines, not marrying them. Seriously, what are you doing? But what is, what is one of the probably, it's, it's a really perplexing thing for me, says this, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. For the Lord was seeking an opportunity against, against the Philistines. And then on the way to Samson going with his parents to get a wife, a lion runs out and charges at him and he tears the lion to pieces with his bare hands. The spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he tears this lion to pieces with his bare hands. And he goes and he gets his wife and on the way back, the, the, the wedding is sorted now and he's on his way home and he sees the lion's carcass. Remember, Nazarite vow, not allowed to touch corpses. He sees the lion's carcass with the honey inside and he thinks, oh, this looks good. Bears no, uh, pays no mind to his vow at all and he scoops some honey out of this carcass and having already ignored his parents, he also defiles them by giving them the honey from inside of the carcass. And Samson at the wedding told the Philistines present a riddle, and it was to do with the lion and the honey. And he told them a riddle, and they couldn't figure it out. And the Philistines threatened Samson's wife uh, to, to get the answer out of Samson. Samson made a wager with them for 30 sets of clothing, 30 garments, 30 sets of clothing. And when the, uh, when the Philistines told Samson the answer to his riddle, Samson said, you only, you cheated. You, you got this because you plowed with my heifer. You, 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 heifer, sorry. You, you got this answer from my wife. And he was so angry that he went and killed 30 Philistine men, took their clothes off of them, and then gave these 30 sets of clothes off of dead men to the people that he'd made the wager with. And he was so angry that in hot anger, he went back to his father's house. He left his wife. He was so angry that in hot anger he went back to his father's house and his wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. They thought Samson obviously wants nothing to do with this woman anymore and they married her off to someone else. Samson cared nothing for the destruction that he left in his wake. When he decided to, he thought, oh, I'll go back to my wife now. He went back to go to his wife to find that they'd given her to someone else in marriage. And he was fuming again. He was absolutely fuming again. And so he tied flaming torches. I don't know how he did this. He tied flaming torches to pairs of foxes with their tails. And then he set these pairs of foxes into the fields to burn all of the Philistines' crops. And so their livelihood was gone. And the Philistines, when they heard who did it, uh, killed Samson's wife and father... And when Samson heard that they did that, he was enraged again. He was enraged, like Samson just never stops. It's like, I'm, you do that, I'm going to do it to you. You do that, I'm going to do it ten times more. He is just awful. And he retaliates. And, um, and we read that he hit them hip and thigh, which apparently is a wrestling idiom for total victory. Then Samson retreated to the lands of Judah. Finally, he's chilling out. He's gone back, he's leaving the Philistines, he's chilling out, he's going to go and he's going to uh, hang out in, in, his, in his brother's land for a while in the tribe of Judah. But the Philistines come looking for him there. 
and 3,000 men of Judah come to find Samson, not to join with him in battle and to be free of the oppression of the Philistines, but to capture him and hand him over to the Philistines. They say to him, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you've done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so I have done to them. Samson's problem all over, isn't it? As they have done to me, I've done to them. So what? And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and they handed him over to the Philistines. 3,000 men of Judah. Gideon defeated the Midianites with 300. Why are these people coming to capture Samson and hand him over? Why aren't they coming to join with this mighty warrior who's done, I mean, he tore a lion to pieces with his bare hands, you know. Why aren't they rallying to him and fighting the Philistines? And the answer is devastating. They have forgotten God. They're not concerned anymore about living faithfully to their God. They are happy to live peacefully among others, regardless of what that means for them. But having been handed over to the Philistines, Samson uh, frees himself of these ropes and with the jawbone of a donkey, so he's touching corpses again, he really doesn't care much for this Nazarite vow, with the jawbone of a donkey, he kills a thousand Philistine men. One of the commentaries that I have been using to help me prepare says that Samson is all brawn and no brain. And if Samson is thinking, it certainly isn't with his head. Because he walked out, uh, so he's, he's chosen a wife from the Philistines, which he shouldn't have done. He ignored his parents, he did it because it was right in his eyes. Then we read that he went into a Philistine prostitute And after that, he meets Delilah. And it's this episode in Samson's life that uh, he is most well known for. And so the Philistines, having used Samson's first wife to figure out the answer to the riddle that he posed to them, now his latest love is used to figure out the riddle that is Samson. How is he so strong? How can we capture him? And the Philistines use Delilah to find the answer to this. But Samson doesn't trust her. He's, he's been bitten once and he's shy this second time and he doesn't trust her, but she persists. And I love this. It says he gets vexed to death. He gets vexed to death. I, I, what a phrase. I love that. And uh, uh, anyway, he gets vexed to death at her badgering and so he tells her exactly what it is that is the source of his strength, how it is that he can be bound, and she betrays him to the laws of the Philistines who capture him gouge out his eyes and parade him as entertainment. As I say, all that promise, gone. God has abandoned Samson, all of his strength, gone. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. And Samson prayed to God, finally. 
It wasn't a great prayer, but he did pray to God, and it wasn't just to any old God, it was to Yahweh. He said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those he had killed during his life. Samson wanted revenge. Not for the glory of God, but for his two eyes. And that is Samson's story in a little less than 1,500 words. So what do we do with this story? I want to do three things with this story. I want to look at God, I want to look at sin, and I want to look at us. God was the architect behind Samson's birth, and and we read uh, throughout the story on a number of occasions that the Spirit of God came upon him, and he did marvellous things things. We don't get any sense, though, that God approves of the actions that Samson took throughout his story. In fact, Samson is jilting God again and again. He's doing exactly what he wants. He's dishonoring his Nazarite vow, and therefore the God that he has made this vow to again and again. He's supposed to be saving the people of Israel from the Philistines, and he's too busy Uh, deciding who it is that he wants to sleep with. The book of Judges really makes us long for more, doesn't it? It really makes us long for more. You You know, perhaps really the problem is that there is no king in Israel. Perhaps this is a cautionary tale, or perhaps that's a part of it. This is a cautionary tale that, that we need a king, but not just any old king. We need the king of kings. But the thing I find mystifying about God in this story is that he seems to be behind things that we wouldn't imagine, I don't suppose, that God would be behind. Samson should never have married a Philistine woman. He should not have. It was a condition of entering the promised land. You won't intermarry. You're going to drive them out before you. You're not going to intermarry. Samson shouldn't have married the daughter of the Timnite. But the Lord was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Like, how does that work? How does that work? He was supposed to be beginning to save Israel from the Philistines, and he's just despising his vow, left, right, and center. We think we know God, don't we? We think we know him, and he just continues to confound us. You know, that, that God would be in Samson's intermarriage is, is, it just, it challenges what we think, doesn't it, about God. It's like, it's like God talking to Satan in Job. What's that about? God, what are you doing that for? That doesn't, that's not what I thought you were like. What are you doing? And it just completely confounds us. His ways really are not our ways. And his thoughts really are higher than our thoughts. Samson is commended for his faith in Hebrews 11. What a faith. (laughs) What faith did Samson demonstrate in his story? 
He was out for himself. Even when he did eventually pray to God, it was for revenge for his two eyes. What faith is he being commended for? You know, what does God see that we don't? It's really, his grace really is amazing. It really is amazing. That he would use a man like Samson, that he would come upon him by his Holy Spirit is it is mind-blowing. It really is mind-blowing. And he's chosen us. He's chosen you and he's chosen me. And he doesn't just come upon us by his spirit every now and then to achieve some end. He has made us temples of the Holy Spirit. He lives inside us permanently. It, it is mind-blowing. It's, it's absolutely like... He's with us everywhere, all the time. It's amazing. And we are people like Samson. The second thing I want to look do is to look at sin. And it strikes me that to talk about sin isn't a very popular thing to do. I was, I was, uh, I was thinking, of, there's a song that I love by Bethel Music called Ain't No Grave. And it is an absolutely amazing song. I love it. It talks about fear, it talks about shame, it talks about no grave holding us down. It never once in the entire song mentions sin. How can that be? What, are we, what might we have cause to be afraid of if it, if it isn't that we are conscious of our sin? What might we feel ashamed of if it isn't that we are conscious of our sin? We can't talk about fear and shame and no condemnation and freedom without talking about sin. So although this isn't popular, it's often not spoken about, we must wrestle with it. I was really grateful to hear it spoken about this morning. Sin is so deceitful. It is so deceitful. It promises something and it doesn't deliver. Not only does it not deliver, but it actually takes from us. We think we can flirt with it and we can't. It kills us. For Samson, his sins, at the very least, seem to have been lust and pride. But this is true of anything that we let rule over us that isn't Jesus himself. Might be anger, might be unforgiveness, could be anything. Anything that we let rule over us that isn't Jesus himself, that has become our master, to that we are its slave. The people of Israel's sin was different. At the very least, their sin seems to have been indifference and compromise. They'd forgotten God and they were content to live with the status quo. Samson was different. He sinned willfully. He played with sin. He thought that he was ruling over it. He was laughing at sin. And in the end, it killed him. And sin is sin, isn't it? Whether it's by action or whether it's by inaction, sin is sin. We fall short of the standard of God and we are in need of his mercy and grace which thank God already this morning we have heard that he just heaps on us he heaps on us and that brings me to us where do we go with this where do we go when we see the grace of God at work through even the worst of men in Samson where do we go with this do we just well, if, if I'm that weak, if I'm that fallen, 
Why do I even bother? Why don't I just carry on sinning and just rely on the grace of God? And the answer is, of course, no, we should resist. I'm not going to address this here, but I am going to instead refer you back to a sermon that John preached a while ago on Romans 6, where he addressed this so well, and you can find it on our website. So what do we do then? (laughs) Do we just lock ourselves away from the world and hide ourselves from anything that might seek to contaminate us? Well, of course not either. God has called us, hasn't he, to, to speak of and to demonstrate his love for a dying world, a world that he loves so much that he sent his one and only son into it, that anyone who would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. So, no. And in truth, our problems with sin, they come more from inside of us, don't they? They come from out of our hearts more than they come from outside towards us. I've just been thinking this morning, I, I, sometimes, I'm sorry John, I hope you don't mind me telling you this, saying this, but it's about me, so... There have been a couple of times where John says, Neil, you need to try and choose softer words sometimes. And, uh, and I've been thinking this morning, I need to try and choose softer words than I've chosen. <laughs> I, think, I think the answer, and this is a little bit, this is something that is a repeated prayer of mine and has been for a long time, so forgive me if this doesn't ring true with you. But I think the answer is that we need to have been broken. We need to have been humbled by God. We see this throughout Scripture, don't we? Samson needed to be broken, really, but he refused to ever be broken. You come at me, I'm coming at you twice as hard. That was Samson's way. But we see this throughout Scripture, don't we? Moses wasn't any use to God until he had spent 40 years in the wilderness. Joseph wasn't any use to God until he had been sold into slavery and spent time in prison. And we can go on and on. David, Paul, you know, this is again and again for us to be useful, for us to be be able to walk into the things that God calls us to. We have to have had a time in our lives where we have just been broken but not broken and abandoned, but broken and embraced. Broken and embraced. Scripture tells us again and again, doesn't it, that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So why do we need to be humbled then if if this is a better approach than having a fatalistic attitude to sin or to hiding ourselves away Well, humbled people find it hard to pass judgment because they have felt the weight of their sin and they felt the holiness of God. And and because they have felt God's holiness and and his grace, they find it easier to show compassion to other people who are stuck in sin, whether it is through ignorance or whether it is through an inability to fight or even if it is by choice. Broken people, humbled people are compassionate. 
I, I really love what we've been seeing in recent weeks as the Holy Spirit has moved among us. Believe me when I say I really want more and more of it. I really want us to uh, continually and increasingly experience the tangible presence of God among us. He is here with us every week, regardless of whether we feel it or not. He is living inside of us. But I'm praying for us that we would increasingly and regularly experience the tangible presence of God. And I'm concerned that we might not fully experience the glory of God among us if really what we've been one to is, is, is a religious experience and not an encounter with the living God who loves us and wants to draw near and have us draw near to him. Trevor uh, read it this morning, didn't he? You know, if you, if you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart, it's with our hearts that we have to believe. There has to be something, there has to have been a time where our hearts are just completely captivated by God. I've seen you, I've seen myself, but I'm not ashamed. There's no condemnation but I feel my need for you and I thank you, God, that you are so gracious, that you are so loving, that I can come near to you without any shame, without any fear, because of my sin. <laughs> Let's add a verse into that song, Ain't No Grave. Let's have one that actually mentions sin, but there's no condemnation for me. I approach you with confidence. You love me. In Luke, when Jesus was commending Mary for her extravagant act of worship in pouring perfume on his feet, he said, Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, I've never murdered anyone. I've never robbed a bank comparatively, I could look around and say, my sins are quite little, actually. But, you know, I don't want to love little. And actually, when I have, in times, and, I, and I'm not asking you to consider your sin. I don't want you to sit there and go, right, think of the worst thing you've ever done. All right, Jesus died for that. I don't want you to do that. But when I consider my sin, and I consider the lengths that God went to to save me, from them, I am blown away. And so like Paul, I hope, I consider myself to be the worst sinner. Because, I mean, I don't know your sin. <laughs> Most of your sin is secret. Most of my sin is secret. I know my sin. And I feel the weight of it sometimes. Sometimes God brings conviction Sometimes he lets me feel the weight of my sin, but as I say, he doesn't do that and then abandon me. He does that and then embraces me. Have you ever felt the weight of your sin? You know, I, I just love, you know, God that leaves the 99 to find the one, even if it was just me, he would die. 
Even if it was just you, he would die. He leaves the 99 to find the one. You have to, you have to grasp how great God's love is for you. I'm really not trying to beat you up by talking about sin. I want to come to God with all of my sin and I want to experience his love in all of it. I want to experience his, his acknowledgement and his affirmation and his reassurance. I want to come to God. I want to live a life of faithful, obedient worship. I want to be, I want to be set apart for him. I don't want to compromise anymore. I don't want to be like the world around me. God, I want to be yours. I want to live the life that you're calling me to because I truly do believe that the life you're calling me to is better than the life I would choose for myself. And when I think where I was 19 years ago, I have no idea. I would not have been here. Well, I would have been here 19 years ago because God had a plan. (laughs) But 19 years ago, I could never have imagined this is where I would be, this is what I would be saying. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to leave Cheryl and the girls and go to Outer Mongolia to tell, you know, tribes who have never heard about Jesus about him. It means I want to love justice. I want to love mercy. I want to walk humbly with my God. It means I want to become a better husband. I want to become a better father. I want to become the best pastor I can possibly be and if I wasn't a pastor I would want to be the best teacher that I could be. I I love the intro of The Simpsons. I'm, I'm sure you've all watched The Simpsons. There's this moment when we meet Homer for the first time in the introduction to The Simpsons where behind him there is a sign that says days without incident And just as the bell blows, a guy puts three on it. There have been three days without a major incident in this nuclear reactor. And Homer, hearing the bell go, drops what he's doing and a bar of radioactive material bounces off of the table into his clothes and he walks off. And you just know that tomorrow it's going to be at zero again. You know, we are Homer. We mess up again and again. That days without incident bar is always at zero with us. Always. We never even get to one. And God knows. And he loves us. And it's crazy. Because if you're married, you know that it's a rare week when one or both of you doesn't snap at each other in some small or large way. If you've got children, you know it is a rare week when they don't effectively push your buttons and you regret the way that you react. If you work, you know that it is a rare week where not only do you work to the best of your abilities, but you also work for the glory of God and not for your own good reputation. In so many ways and all the time, we find that days without incident is at zero. I want to give an opportunity for us all to consider <laughs> what, we, what I have been speaking about and to allow ourselves, if necessary, to be broken and to let God put us back together better. If we will, I believe that he will be quick to come to us by his Holy Spirit and to speak words of loving kindness to us Because, do you know, 
We have a better calling than Samson, and we mustn't squander it. Ephesians 1 tells us that we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We have a better calling than Samson. In Hebrews 11, straight after the list of heroes of the faith where Samson is listed, it says, none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better. That probably deserves a sermon on its own, but I'm going to move on. (laughs) Straight after that, the writer to the Hebrews says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off every weight throw off every weight and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And I could read on there and I could read in many other places, but I want to let the Holy Spirit talk to us 